Hello, this is William Fink, and this program is being pre-recorded for Christogenia Saturdays for this upcoming January 27th, when, Yahweh willing, I will be present with the League of the South in Tallahassee, Florida, for demonstrations expressing the desire for Florida's sovereignty. It has been just over a year since we first became acquainted with the League of the South, and nine months since we first met its founding leader and president, Dr. Michael Hill, in New Orleans. Now we are just as impressed with its leaders and its members as we had been last May at Lee Circle, and we are pleased once more to have Michael Hill here for a discussion of the League and its philosophy and activities and its outlook on the coming year. Greetings, sir, and welcome once again to Christogenia. Ah, greetings to you from the League of the South, Bill. Good to be with you again. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, after a year of Donald Trump, who certainly seems to be the last so-called great white hope for the populist right, and, and I'll explain my use of that term soon, even though I can't understand why he was ever thought to be a hope at all. It's still politics as usual in Washington, and, and the swamp is fuller than ever. So how many times do people have to be disappointed before they understand that there's no political answer to our woes? Well, that's a good question. It, it seems like that people have been going back to that well uh, for many, many years, hoping to get fresh water out of it, as it were. But politics is not the answer. Politics is a tool, just like everything else. You know that, Bill. Uh, but there's no political solution right now for our situation. Uh, politics is so corrupt in D.C., and the same applies uh, in Europe as well. There's no hope for white Western man right now in politics because the whole system has been compromised to the degree that any hope of any meaningful change or reform isn't going to happen because the powers that be, and obviously when I say that at the top of the list I'm talking about the uh, international Jew, uh, controls all the avenues to reform. And there's not going to be any meaningful reform. Uh, there could be a little bit of tinkering around the edges, but uh, there's not going to be any, any real reform through the political system because of the people who control it and manage it and any time there becomes a threat, uh, a real threat, uh, to their power, their wealth, their influence, they're going to shut it down uh, immediately. And that's why I believe that politics, even though it's a useful tool sometimes, uh, is a, a forlorn hope, if you will, for any meaningful change and for the survival of our uh, race and of our uh, faith. So we got to find some other way to go about doing this. And uh, the League has, has always uh, been of the opinion that uh, you have to have a multifaceted approach to all of these things. And anyone who puts all their eggs in the political basket is going to be very disappointed. Right, exactly. And, and you know, it, I'm, I'm so happy that you have that attitude about politics. And, and that's 
you're, you know, one of the things that attracted me to you and your organization. It, it's easy to sit and sit, most of the alt-right does this, right? It's easy to sit around and make jokes or to offer vain commentaries about the political situation. And people love to support that because they think that it might actually accomplish something. And, and I think that a lot of pundits pundits, especially internet pundits, they rely on discussions about politics and political solutions only because they have no other drum to beat. They have no other concept to offer. So in reality, they're only empty talking heads. Yes, I agree. Uh, You see a lot of talk about politics from, uh, you know, all uh, all, all points on the political spectrum uh, from the hard left to the alt right, um, but you know, I, I suppose if you if you're on the uh, if you're on the establishment side of things today, of course, which we are not. Uh, I guess politics uh, can preserve you in power for a while, or you think it can. But I don't understand why people on the right, you know, outside of mainstream conservatism, GOP conservatism. Uh, will waste their time beating that particular drum, as you said, because it's futile. It it really hasn't produced anything, uh, and they they will point uh, to, you know, gains from the GOP in the House and maybe even the Trump presidency. And, you know, so far, uh, I I think that they're beating a a drum that's not not going to give uh, a lot of sound uh, meaningful sound anyway. Uh, now, that's that's not to say that, that Yahweh himself could not take a man like Donald Trump and use him for whatever purpose he, he, he will. And I pray that that happens because I do think that, uh, at least on the surface, Trump has made a lot of the right enemies. I don't know what that means, but I do know this, that my own experience, and Bill, I've been around doing this for a long time. Uh, I still consider myself to be a young man the way I feel, but I have been around for a while, and I've been doing this activism for about a quarter of a century, hard. And, you know, my experience tells me that if you focus all your time on politics, like a lot of these guys on the Internet do, and they're always looking for political solutions and always having these political discussions, uh, it's empty. It's, it's void of any real meaning, Uh it's vanity, if you will, to you to use a, a biblical term, uh, empty, vain, and uh, I just I'm always looking for different solutions. And I'm a very fundamental person, Bill. You know, when uh, when all else fails, go to the streets, go to the streets with your flesh and blood, with your with your uh, shoe leather on the streets. Take your people out there, confront the enemy face to face, and see what happens. And let other people see you do that. There is a solution in that, in my opinion. Not going to the ballot box, but going out on the streets, because that's where the real—that's where the real power is. Right. Uh, and it's not necessarily political power; it's just raw power sometimes. And as be, just being a simple man like I am, that's my solution: is engage the enemy where there's the most chance of exerting raw power, and absorbing his raw power and repelling him. So. That's why we go out in the streets, like you know, you mentioned New Orleans and Charlottesville, and uh, this coming Saturday, or you know, to, I guess when the people hear this, it'll be today in Tallahassee. Um, so, 
I'm I'm very I'm, I'm very uh, optimistic about what we can do if we just take to the streets and get off the internet and you know uh, get in real life as they say. Well, well, right. That's that that's my own um, reason for joining the League of the South was to look. Christogeny.org is it is a website. That's all it is. It represents my religious and historical views. It's not an organization where people can collect and go out and do things, right? I never planned it to be that. So I, 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 I spent several years with the idea in the back of my mind that I need to, um, to be a part of something that, that goes out to the streets and, and sees people face to face and, and expresses our convictions and, and our principles in public. We need that. If you don't do that, then, then you are useless because most of the internet, I mean, even though my website, half of its viewers had never been there before each month, most of those people never come back. So I'm really just preaching to the same choir, the same 50 or 100,000 people every month. And, and it, it, the, the growth on the internet is so slow and so incremental. What, where it's not as useful a tool for as getting out in the street and and making a show of things and showing the public, hey, here we are. This is what we believe, and and you have an opportunity to join us. That that to me is a lot more effective. I, I totally agree with you. It is, a, yeah, it, it it is, Bill. And uh, you know, I think that that we're called upon by our Creator to face our enemies and more importantly, His enemies face to face. And let me uh, let me give you a little example, uh, and you're you're very much aware of this. But I'm not sure if your uh, listeners have thought of it, but that day we went to Charlottesville uh, and confronted our enemies face to face in the street. Uh, there was no event, to my knowledge, in the world, in the entire world, that day that captured the attention and imagination of of people like what we did in Charlottesville. Uh, it was all over. The, of the civilized world, and in, in fact, it was in a lot of places that, that we had hoped it would be, uh, the video footage and the commentary. Uh, even though they weren't slanted in our favor, we didn't expect them to be, but we knew what was at stake at Charlottesville, and we knew that it was a risk to take. But Yahweh himself set this up perfectly for what he apparently wanted us to accomplish and what we certainly wanted to accomplish. And that is to show the world that there were people who were willing to stand up in the streets against communists and anarchists in America in one of the most liberal bastions um, on the East Coast and to go head-to-head with the enemies of our God and our people and our civilization and to have that be the headline event in the news in the world, in the whole world, on that day, I think speaks to the marvelous, marvelous opportunities that we have uh, had then and have now and in the future to engage our enemy in the street and to do it in the name of Yahweh, our Creator, and to do it uh, bravely and and courageously and steadfastly and, uh, and let the opposition say what they will about it. But we took those calculated risks and the benefit to it, to us, from it, has been tremendous in the publicity that we've gotten worldwide, in the number of members that we've gotten since August, and into the league, uh, 
and for the expectations for us in the future. People are excited because they realize they're part of something that, that will go to that most fundamental level, the street, the public, the public square, call it whatever you will, and engage the enemy there, not just online. And I'm not disparaging online stuff, Bill. I, I mean, the league has a website, leagueofthesouth.com. We use it to spread information. We use social media to plan events and to publicize events. So it's a tool. But if that's the extent of one's activism, as it apparently is with a good deal of the alt-right, uh, it's nothing but uh, it, it's basically a form of self-congratulations. You know, you get on there and you talk back and forth in what amounts to an echo chamber, and you think you're really doing something. You're not really doing something until you get out there and you face your enemy in the streets, and you also give those people who are on the fence. They don't know which way to go, whether to side with your enemy or to side with you. You go out there and give them a, a certain trumpet uh, to, to call them, and they will come to your side. And that's what we have managed to accomplish with Charlottesville and since Charlottesville. Well, well, I see a lot of um, rhetoric on the Internet that Charlottesville was a big loss for us, that we look like fools at Charlottesville. I thought Charlottesville was a great victory. I, I th- and in spite of the mainstream media propaganda, I thought we had a great victory at Charlottesville. We did, Bill. And the only reason that, that there are those out there who say that well, there are several reasons. Uh, the big the big reason I think is one of the fundamental things that we understand about human nature. If these people weren't there at it, which many of them weren't, and I'm talking about people on the right, then it wasn't worth being at, and they have to disparage it. And it's it's one of these well, if I had been there, I would have done it this way kind of things, you know. And I understand that that's a part of human nature. If you're not part of something that kind of, uh, well, was a big deal like that, then you tend to kind of downplay it and disparage it and say, well, I could have done better. Uh, if I was there, it would have been a success for us. I, I uh, sort of think that a lot of those, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I sort of think that a lot of those people that I could have done better people would have actually probably urinated themselves at Charlottesville. Well, I can't disagree with you there, sir, knowing some of them. Um but I, I never expected the the uh, elite media and everything that stems from that to to do anything to help us, uh, other than simply be able to resist covering us. They can't resist covering us, and they always say bad things about us. But a lot of people can read, uh, you know, read between the lines and see through that. But Charlotte and I, I have heard uh, a number of people say on the right. I think sincerely, but mistakenly that they didn't like the optics at Charlottesville because uh, the uh, we alienated a lot of mainstream conservatives and uh, normal people, normies, I think they call them. Uh, I disagree with that. I, I think that uh, the people who would be alienated by something like that would never be on our side to start with. I think you appeal with boldness. I think you appeal with uh, audacity and you, you pull people into your movement who are worthy of being there, who maybe just haven't had that little push that they need. And that's what we got from Charlottesville, and that's why it was worth everything we put into it uh, to show people, yeah, this can be done, and you 
can have a wonderful, marvelous time doing it. I had so many people, Bill, contact me in the days and weeks uh, following Charlottesville saying, I saw y'all in the streets there. And I can't tell you, A, how proud I was of you, and B, how much I would have liked to have been there with you, and C, how much effort I'm going to make to make sure I am there with you the next time. Now, those are the, those are the people that we reached and wanted to reach, and we did. And that's why I think that it was an absolute success, uh, even though it didn't fall out the way we planned. Uh, it fell out in the way that our Creator wanted it to fall out, and it fell out very beneficial for us. So I, I see it, as you do, my friend, as nothing but a success. I believe so, and, you, and you're actually very um, proficient at anticipating my line of questioning. I, I was going to discuss the optics debate next. I, I think most of the optics debate came from the... the, the um, Wow, the Tofu Boys, the Tofu Gang on the alt-right. <laughs> the Soy Boys. Yeah, yeah, the Soy Boys, right, <laughs> of the alt-right. Yeah. The, and, and, and when I say populist right, I, I'm trying to describe the hard right and the alt-right together. It's a traditional term that they're not all really populists, but it, it's the best term I could come up with, that there's been a lot of debate on their side, the soy boy side of the populist right about optics. And to me, they sound like a bunch of prom queens arguing over who has the best, the best gown. What we, <laughs> the, the League of the gown. South, the, the League of the South has by far optimal optics and, and the best optics on the right. I mean, I, I think the NSM might come close and, and the TWP, but no. The League of the South is far ahead of them as, as for optics and, and the, the um, durability of symbols and, and um, what those symbols stand for. So, so Well, I, we I have would... a real historic symbol, Bill. We have the St. Andrew's Cross. Right. And uh, obviously the, the League has taken uh, that cross and, and adapted it to uh, a banner, a flag of our own. We call it the Southern Nationalist Black Cross Flag. It's a black St. Andrew's cross on a white background, about as simple as you can get. Uh, and the, the white stands for our, our racial purity, and the black cross stands for no surrender. And um, it's very simple. It's very direct and in-your-face. We have a uniform, thanks to my chief of staff and, and uh, his, uh, his fellow staff members uh, who work very hard on making sure that we, we have a dress code and it's followed. Uh, we have good optics. We have very, very uh, specific things that we look to uh, in our uniforms and our symbols to make them appealing to people, to make them appealing to people on the hard right. Uh, who are traditionalists, who understand the meaning of historic symbols and their use. Uh, and it's not just something that we made up because it looked cool, you know. It has it has a long history and a background, and it means something, and we initiate people into that, and then they become part of it, and they initiate others into it. And that's how we grow, and that's how we become a formidable force for tradition and uh for our people, so I appreciate you saying that. We have worked hard at our optics, 
and we want them to to be uh, hard, as it were. We want when we walk into the streets, people to recognize us, and we want them to be afraid of us. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I've never in my life been real big on on uniforms and going out and playing dress up. But in in these situations, a uniform is is mandatory so that we could identify each other and know who's on our side and and look like we stand together. And and these optics are wonderful. I mean, the uniforms are low key. It's just a khaki. A, a pair of khaki pants and a black shirt with a League of the South patch. It's nothing extravagant, but it's something. And, and it, it, it is awesome to see a, um, a whole group of men of, of like mind in, in these uniforms with their, their, their St. Andrew's crosses and of course the stars and bars. So, so I, I think the optics are, you, you can't beat them. I mean, I couldn't do better well, myself to to try to devise my own. I wouldn't even try. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, a gentleman we both know, Michael Tubbs, uh, my chief of staff and the Florida uh, state chairman for the league, had a had a big hand in in helping uh, me decide on our uniform. And we wanted to keep it simple and direct, and uh, not ostentatious, but you know, just just very straightforward. But you were in New Orleans. Uh, Bill, and you saw what happened there. We had 75 league members, roughly, there dressed in our uniform, carrying flags, and we were pretty much disarmed that day by an order from the New Orleans Police Department and, I think, Department of Homeland Security. But you were there. You saw what happened. There was not much between us and that horde of about a 1,000 degenerates who came marching down the street toward Lee Park and if they wanted to break through those flimsy, waist-high barriers with a few cops in between us and them, they could have. I was and anticipating in fact, the it. Let the, <laughs> yeah, the cops let them let let them through actually, and they got up there where they could argue face to face with us. We had seventy-five men in uniform who looked like they were, they knew what they were doing, and they would stand with one another through thick and thin. And then you had a thousand degenerates out there in the street who would not did not want to tangle with us. So that tells you what the uniform will do for, in the mind of the enemy. They know that you're a unified force, and then they know you are of the same mind, and they know that you've had training, and they know that you will stand together as one. And they're just a bunch of deracinated individuals out there, and they could have overwhelmed us with sheer numbers if they had had the courage they didn't have the courage to take on 75 of us in new orleans and i think in part that was because of the uniform and the discipline uh that mike tubbs and and i were able to exert over those young men that day and to get them to believe that they were invincible on those streets well my money was on a league that day even though I'm not typically a gambler. And and that was <laughs> one of the things that impressed me most about the league what was not the expression of principles. Anybody can express principles, but the willingness to stand for them under those circumstances. Well, you know, uh, uh, our creator tells us that we should put on the whole armor that he gives us, the whole armor of God, and to stand in the evil day. 
Now, he doesn't tell us that we need to stand only if we can win, and we didn't know on that day if we could win or not if it came down to blows. But we did know that we had an obligation to stand in the evil day, and that was certainly an evil day. You witnessed this. You witnessed that horde of degenerates come marching down that street. You could literally smell them. And if that is not standing in the evil day and putting on the armor of God uh, against his enemies, I don't know what is. And that's why I was so proud of everybody who came to stand for the league in New Orleans that day. And then that was just uh, magnified, of course, in Charlottesville. So I just couldn't be prouder of the way our people uh, uh, acquit themselves well, in they situations weren't situations like this. That they weren't at all intimidated by that horde. That they were exuberant to see them. <laughs> I believe that my yes, wife I, Melissa I, had caught a good portion of that on film. When the Antifa rounded the corner to come down towards Lee Circle, and and the the, the young men from the League of the South were absolutely exuberant that they were going to face them. Absolutely. I cannot tell you, uh, I had the, I had an experience that day I hadn't had in a long time. Um, somebody had uh, one of these big boom boxes out there in the street, and they were playing that old Johnny Horton song, The Battle of New Orleans. I remember that. That was popular when I was a child, and I loved it. You know, I, I, it was one of my favorite songs. Um, and they started playing that, and I just felt the battle joy rushing all up and down my body like I've never felt it since I was about 19 or 20 years old. And I just couldn't stop laughing. I just said, this, you know, Yahweh himself has set this situation up, and it couldn't be, a movie script couldn't do it better. Obviously, a movie script couldn't do it better. And I looked at those young men, and they had smiles on their faces like, bring this enemy on. And I, I just, I mean, I had chill bumps running up and down my spine all afternoon because of that. Uh, it was just, it was unspeakably delightful to be in such a situation where you were outnumbered, uh, you know, more than 10 to 1, but you knew that the enemy did not have a chance. And And the... That the fruits of that exuberance manifested itself in a different way in Charlottesville. There wasn't one coward in the ranks of of, of the um, the hard right or the League of the South men. No, we we marched out of that parking garage on East Market Street and had three blocks to go to get to the park. And I looked, you know, we formed we t- we took about an hour to form up and let everybody get there in that parking garage. And people had shields, and we were beating on those shields and chanting and all kind of things. And I just walked around and looked at the, looked in the eyes of all those people, men and women too. I mean, so we had some women there, and I, I, I made sure that they got put on the interior of the column where they would have some protection. But, you know, you had little women there, you know, 5'3", 5'4", 120 pounds, looking fearless. And that's not, you know, uh, and that inspires the men so there wasn't uh, there wasn't uh, uh, anywhere near a coward in that bunch that we marched out of that parking garage with, and they acquitted themselves like real Christian men and women ought to, marching through that horde of uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter to get to that park. So, uh, I mean, it, it's just indescribable uh, what it feels like to get to lead. 
something like that out in the streets. And I'm just encouraging your your listeners. If you haven't done anything like this and you really want to get that experience of what it's like to face the enemies of your God and look them straight in the eye and defy them as a you know, as the scum of the earth they are, come on out and join us and, and we'll give you the opportunity to do that. Well, I know that um some of our listeners have joined the league and I encourage them to do so because it's uh, I think and and this is at the at the end of my notes for this evening but I'll I'll sort of skip ahead that the um I believe the League of the South is an ideal vehicle and presents an excellent opportunity to fellowship with other like-minded southern nationalists and actually do something to put your Christian identity convictions into action we we can't simply sit behind a keyboard and and preach to the choir on Facebook and and think that we're pleasing our God. We have to stand in the public arena for our convictions, like the apostles did in 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 the first century. That they didn't just sit and huddle in a closed room and talk to each other. I, I, they got out there and and confronted the the pagan Roman world and the immoral Roman world because it was by the time of Nero and and they they were willing to risk their lives to um to to confront the beast and and to even if we cannot defeat this empire by ourselves to confront it and and point out to it its sin it is is mandatory of all Christians. Yes, it is, and I think to use a, a modern phrase, I think that our Creator wants us to have some skin in the game, as it were. It's it's one thing to to talk; it's another thing to put yourself out there in harm's way and to confront uh, the beast, as it were, uh, against uh, against great odds. Because the beast has great temporal power, it's, it's it's it will be defeated. Of course, it already has been by the work of uh, Christ Himself. But uh, it 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 thinks it has a lot of worldly power, and and by that count, it does. But uh, it realizes who it is, and it realizes why it's afraid of a small number of people like us with conviction because we have the truth and the truth is going to destroy them all the time but you're right you know when when people don't put any skin in the game they don't put themselves out there on the line they're not serving uh Yahweh as they should be serving him yes it's dangerous yes it may shorten your life it may get you in trouble with the authorities uh with God's enemies but my goodness do we want to be in any situation other than in trouble with God's enemies? I certainly don't want to be, uh, 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 you know, uh, receiving the favor of God's enemies because that means I'm not confronting them and and uh, telling them uh, of their sin and telling them the truth and telling them uh, that they need to repent. So we're willing to do that, and we're willing to go out and fight our enemies and his uh, no matter what the odds, because that's what that's what men of God do, and they've always done, as you've pointed out, even in the age of 
uh, Nero, and uh, especially in the age of Nero, when it was uh, a real life and death matter. And I think it's becoming a life and death matter again because the beast knows that his time is short and he's going to strike out with everything he has. And he has substantial resources, as I said, to strike out with. But he's he's a dead man, as it were. Well, well, right, and that's some of my listeners voiced dismay that I joined the League of the South because they view it as a political group seeking political solutions. And and I don't see the League that way. I, I mean, okay, we're not trying to overthrow the government. We're only um, advocating succession. And and that is only an expression of our right to self-determination. And and when I wrote my article on Shelbyville, I believe that I that that I showed that even the beast itself advocates self-determination when it is politically expedient for the beast to do so. But succession for me is a desirable objective, even as an identity Christian, because succession is only a political expression of the desire to see the crumbling of Mystery Babylon. That That's all it is yes, to me. absolutely. And that's the, all it is. It's, it's withdrawing your consent. Right. Withdrawing your support from an evil regime. And what, what Christian would not want to do that? We're told to come out and be separate. Right. And this is a, a manifestation of that. Right. Without preaching and anything as radical as government overthrow succession that that's the the that's the original um dispute of the south against the yankee empire right i mean the succession that's it, that's it. you know we don't want to overthrow your government uh i, I could care less what the government in dc does as right. long as it leaves my pe- me and my people alone absolutely and uh, people it, have the right you know, to ex- it, it can exist but I'd, we don't want to be part of it we don't want to be under its its uh bogus authority it's under its power absolutely uh, we want to come out and be separate from it and live as a christian people ought to we don't want to overthrow it it can have it can have dc we simply want our place and for us in the South, that is the Southland, Dixie, our uh, our uh, the land of our ancestors, the land our ancestors uh, carved out of a howling wilderness over the last 400 years. That's what we want. That's our inheritance from from Yahweh Himself, and that's all we want. We don't want to overthrow any anybody's government. They can have it. We just want to be separate from it. And I don't see how any identity Christian could not want that with you. I don't either. The succession of any state from the American Empire seems like an impossible dream. But, I mean, at one time, provinces were able to succeed from Rome, right? (laughs) Succession, to me, Mm -hmm. is at least a way to awaken people to thinking about a world outside of, or even the passing of the American Empire, because empire, no empire is going to stand forever. Uh, No, uh, empires... Uh, come and go, even the mightiest, you know, uh, and you can, you can go back to, you know, the prophecies of, in the book of Daniel, for example, and you can see all the empires that, that rose and, and fell, and the American empire, and it truly is an empire, uh, is going to, uh, you know, have the same fate befall it. So, 
of a people, a nation, uh, and a nation obviously is is not a political unit; it's a genetic unit. Uh, the, the southern nation, the southern people, we've been trying for a quarter of a century to prepare them for the day that this multicultural, multiracial, polyglot empire fell uh, from simply its own overstretch and exhaustion, political, social, cultural, economic, and moral exhaustion uh, when it, it falls, there's going to have to be something to take its place. Right. And we've been trying to get Southerners and Christian Southerners in particular to think about what their future is going to be when this does happen, because it is in the process of happening right now. It is Mystery Babylon. I mean, all you have to do is look around at all of the moral atrocities that are happening on a daily basis and all of the persecution of Christians for trying to you know, do something as as seeming seemingly innocent as simply pointing it out, uh, and people are going to have to make a choice. Do I go down with this uh, this mystery Babylon into the abyss, or do I take my family and serve the true and living God and remove myself from mystery Babylon? Uh, and to me, that's a very very uh, easy choice, uh, you know. As for me and my house, uh, we shall serve the Lord. And, and that's and, the choice uh, that been, Revelation yeah, offers. That's the choice. Revelation chapter yeah. eighteen: Come out from among her, or you will suffer her punishments. Absolutely, and, it's and that simple. If these white people in any region don't get tribal and and be prepared for that fall, they're not going to survive. No. Absolutely not, and and that's right. You know, one of the we, we use a lot of slogans in the league because slogans are shorthand for more uh, complex uh, uh, complex uh, issues. And uh, one we use is find your tribe, because you know uh, God Himself created uh, the nations, and I, I've always said, uh, and I'm no theologian, but I do think I know enough about. God's holy word to say that if you're not a nationalist you can't be a Christian because God created the nations and he has a chosen people and they are identified by their personhood uh, in other words he has a nation a holy nation a holy people absolutely and even it ain't the Jews it ain't the Jews right. who, who who claim it uh, so that's why we say tribe up you know or find your tribe because that, that is the way that we are supposed to define ourselves from others is the tribes we belong to. And uh, that is a, a very fundamental thing. And I think that once you reach people and you scrape away all this globalist propaganda about the uh, you know fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man crap, that pervades so many mainstream religious organizations these days, I won't call them churches, um, then people start to see, yes, I do need to identify not only with my God and his word, but with my people, because he created my people, and he gave them their designation, uh, and they're my tribe. This is my family. Absolutely. And I know what family connections are supposed to be. 
that that's that's a demand of Christians. It's not an option. It's a demand. But they're not like yes. you mentioned those religious organizations. They're not properly taught scripture, and and that's the biggest gap to bridge with these so-called normies. These people that aren't awakened, may, maybe to get them to realize that the government is not their god. Their god, and and. It's difficult to get people to think about self-determination in a supersized nanny state. Too many white people just love the big government titty. They just love it. Well, they do because they have uh, gotten comfortable with it. They've been told that that's the way you live. That's the normal state of affairs in their everyday life. And people are, whether we want to, to admit it or not, people are creatures of comfortable habits. And this is a comfortable habit, uh, having yourself taken care of and your needs and not having to worry about all of the responsibilities that go along with true freedom in Christ. Uh, true freedom in Christ requires you to be a warrior and on your, uh, on your toes every day. Right. It makes for uh, to, to be to be a real man of God is an exciting life, but it's too exciting for most people. Bill, it's too exciting for most people, and they want the security uh, that the nanny state uh, provides, uh, rather than the challenge of life as a true Christian man or woman. But once they experience the exuberance of being a free Christian man or woman and responsible for yourself, uh, I don't think they will want to go back into that uh, position of, of dependency on someone else to take care of you because if you depend on someone, they're going to call the shots. And when push comes to shove, it's their decision, not your decision, that's going to prevail. And then you're going to realize how unfree you really are. Right. And freedom and res- freedom comes with a responsibility. Freedom, Christian liberty, comes with the responsibility of being on your toes, being sharp, being tough, being a warrior all the time. But gosh, what a better way to go through life. And, and right, it does. It it does liberate you. A, a um psychological breaking of the shackles of big government and the nanny state and, and reliance on government does, and, and a turning to Christian morality and your own people is an extremely liberating experience. It is, Bill. It, it makes you realize, really, I think, who God intended you to be uh, in his image. Uh, when you get away from that, you get away from your tribe, you get away from your uh, concept of Christian liberty. You make yourself a slave psychologically and physically of the, of the nanny state, this, this big mystery Babylon, as you so well defined it. You're not living as God intended you to live as a creature created in his image. And when you, you, by your own efforts and by his grace, you don't do it by yourself, but you have to make an effort. By your own efforts and his grace, you free yourself from that then that's when you start to really live. And that's when your eyes awaken and you know who you are. And you know what your mission is. And you become that warrior. And that's the way men and women need to go through life. 
absolutely. And, and that, that's any of our listeners and any of my listeners that are identity Christian should understand this. And, and I believe for that reason, it, if they're down south especially, I know that some of my listeners even as far away as England have joined the league since, uh, yes. since we, since we did our first program together. And, and I believe that's just their way of showing token support because it's not really too useful to be a League of the South member in Yorkshire. It, it's just not. But that's okay. It's, <laughs> I'm sure you could appreciate that. That the, um, this leads me to speak about the, the hard right or nationalist front, I believe you call it, coalition. That the, um, traditionalist worker party, the national socialist movement, um, maybe Identity Europa, if I'm not mistaken, I might be mistaken about that. A lot of my listeners... Well, yeah, it's not Identity Europa, it's Vanguard America. Okay. They changed their name, I, I, I gather, or maybe I just... Well, no, no, it's actually a separate group. Uh, Identity Europa uh, pretty much operates by themselves. Uh, Vanguard, Vanguard America is a more hard right. Uh, organization. Okay, then I'm just confused. I'm not. I, I'm not as up on the alt right as Brad Griffin is. <laughs> He's the expert. I would defer that to him. Yeah, Brad. Brad really <laughs> does a good job keeping up with with all of this. But, yes. Uh, yeah. There, there's a difference between, as you know, between the hard right and the alt right. Oh, absolutely. That the alt right to me is is useless, and and I wouldn't even consider them in 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 this group. But even even with that, a lot of my own listeners scratch their heads at some of these hard right groups and their leaders. I don't believe that we should be entirely against cooperating with groups espousing diverse opinions on various subjects so long as their core values in support of Christian Western civilization and, and white people are in agreement. I, I think you would agree with that. Yes, I would. Uh, I, I, I do... Uh I do understand why some people have uh, some concerns uh, about alliances like this, but what you have to understand is that they are loose alliances, and we, each group in it, has its own uh, worldview, and we go uh, we we go in those directions. But when we have a an opportunity uh, to come together as a loose alliance of groups to put numbers and boots in the streets in defense largely of a general idea of white Western uh, civilization, then we'll do that uh, because it is, uh, I think, A, uh, necessary, and B, uh, it, it shows that we have the, op- the, the ability to cooperate with, with others with whom we may have some disagreements. But the left has always made a a point of coming together over issue on issues, and when the right uh, squabbles over them because everybody is not a hundred percent in agreement. And you know we we've tried to use this nationalist front experience, if you will, as kind of a, a training ground for us on the right, the hard right, to come together and show our opponents that we may not always, on the right, the hard right, agree on every single thing, but when it's necessary, we can come together as white men, as Western men, and defend our patrimony that way. And I think it's valuable for that. But we, uh, we 
pretty much look at the alt-right the same way that you do, Bill, that uh, it simply is too concerned with what the enemy and perhaps the enemy's institutions like the media think about us. We don't care about uh, optics in the sense that we're afraid of offending somebody on the left or in their institutions. What we want to do is to appeal to all those fence-sitters out there who are beginning to be awakened by events uh, coming very close to their own doorsteps and convince them that the hard right is willing to take a stand and to challenge the raw power of the left, the communist and anarchist. As I said earlier in our uh, talk here, in the in the streets, in the public square, where it really matters. So we don't see the alt-right as being uh, uh, gutsy enough, if you will, to, to stand out there with us, and, and a few of them might, but not not in the numbers that we need. And they're always worried about, you know, how's this going to look? What's the media going to say about it? Uh, all that kind of stuff. And we're right. way, way, way past that. So, yeah, you know, I, th- uh, I think, and, and I think that um, probably all of my listeners feel this way that 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 the um, these all right figures, a lot of them are plants. A lot of them are not even us. And I'm fully persuaded. Of, I'm not going to go down the list. I'm fully persuaded that that certain all right figures are intruders. They're interlopers, and I'm vocal about who they are. I can't help myself. I feel that as my duty to be vocal, to to warn my my own people about the the, the nature of some of these organizations or interlopers I would call them who, who have jumped at the front of the parade of the right in general that they've jumped at the front of the parade they, they're well financed they're financed beyond where I could ever be financed that they're um, able to put out really sleek website they have teams of writers ra- rather than just one single writer and and they do nothing but banter about politics and they despise traditional Western cultural values. They despise Christianity. It it really sort of upsets me that even some league members have um, have been alienated from me because I'm vocal about this, and and I have to be, and and that sort of disappoints me. That the even the enemies of my enemies aren't necessarily my friends, right? I, well, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly share some of the same concerns that you have about this bill. I, I know that there are certain so-called leaders uh, in the alt-right who have kind of put themselves at the head of the parade um, and haven't, in my opinion, paid their dues uh, over the years. Uh, and they do, they do have mysterious uh, backers and uh, plenty of money to draw on, which always kind of is a red flag to me. It do- doesn't always have to be, but it- it's certainly something you need to look at. Well, right, but I'm sure you know. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm one, sure. one of the things that, that I've prided myself on in the league is that we have a very good intelligence-gathering uh, wing in our organization, and we always have. 
And we're gathering intelligence every day on some of these alt-right leaders to determine whether or not they are legit and whether or not they are interlopers, as you point out, or whether they are just ambitious people who are, are trying to jump on the bandwagon of something they think is popular. And, you know, there's always going to be a degree of controversy uh, about some of the personalities involved in this, but we are diligently, day by day, trying to find out the facts about some of these people before we uh, make any public pronouncements about them. But uh, I can tell you this, that, uh, you know, they're, they're not all who they say they are. And that uh, that's all I'll say about that right now. I'm like you, I'm not going to start naming any names. But there are some people out there that, uh, and that's why we don't work very closely with some of them, because... We have our doubts about them. Right. So I'm just pleased that I, you that's are. That's pretty much all I'll say about that. But but we are in the process of doing this, and we will do what's good for the organization. Absolutely. Right. That's my only concern. I, I, I don't want to um, try to subvert your organization. I, I'm happy that you're being diligent about that. And and even if your conclusions are, are not my own, that that's okay with me because I know that you're putting your best into it. And, and perhaps I'm wrong about something, right? I, I mean, that's possible. I'm not right about everything. If, if it's not well, in... we have. <laughs> yeah, we we have pretty much. Uh, we're we're working with the people right now that we're comfortable with, and it, it may not go beyond that, you know. Uh, and if we see somebody who we we determine uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that is an interloper and a threat, we won't hesitate to publicly call those people out. Uh, and we're in the process of, of, as I said, of gathering some really good information, hard information on uh, on some of these people. And uh, yeah, I, th- I think you do, you have to do that for the sake of your membership. Yes, sir. And you have to be diligent about it. And if it causes some hurt feelings here or there, uh, that's just the nature of the game. Yeah, I've already heard a few feelings. I hate doing that, but... <laughs> Well, well, it happens. It well, happens. you know, I, I don't mind hurting feelings in, in public and hurting the feelings of my enemies, not at all. But oh no, to, absolutely to, not. To to hurt the feelings of, of people that I see as my own kinsmen or, or of my own um, racial stock that that disturbs me. I don't like doing that. It, if um. If it's over something that should be external and and should only be a side issue, because a lot of this should only be a side issue. What we think about certain people yeah, in the alt right, right is really only a side issue. It, it's that's not right. core that's to our exactly objectives. Right. It's certainly not core to our objectives. That no, the, um, and, and the way I look at this is, is part of that old uh, admonition uh, for iron to sharpen iron. Right. And we need to have these debates, but I, I really think that uh, uh, we need to keep them internal as much as possible until we can resolve them. Oh, I agree. And figure out exactly exactly what's going on with some of these issues. Absolutely. And within my league activities, I would certainly defer to the league. I, I wouldn't um, raise these arguments once the league made a decision. I don't want to be a sure. subversive force, but un- until sure. then, I have to be vocal. I have to give my opinion. That's what I do. That's that. That's my vocation. Sure. Absolutely, <laughs> I can't help. Oh it. yes, sir. I understand <laughs> that. We haven't we haven't come to any conclusions 
yet on on some of the uh, questionable figures that that uh, I know who you're talking about, and you know who I'm talking yeah. about. But we really haven't uh, haven't uh, come to to uh, a conclusion on some of these things yet. So that's why I kind of keep it close to the vest and keep it internal. Yeah, that's uh, fine. But you know when the when yeah you know, when the day comes that, that right. we have. Uh, Conclusive proof, then I'll be glad to go public with. with a lot well, of well right. I just, I just want to let my listeners know that that you're aware of these things, and and you don't blindly oh, yeah. um, make invitations or enter into alliances or or whatever. That everything's calculated and thought out, and and done to be for the benefit of the league in general. And and even if sometimes you have to be a little uncomfortable. Oh, that's right. Well, let, let, let me give you one example uh, uh, that might help your your listeners uh, understand this a little bit more fundamentally. I won't call a name here, but he is probably probably the most recognizable alt right leader out there. At least the press has kind of dubbed him that. Uh, he holds a, a national conference every year up around D.C. And about three four years ago, he asked me if I would be a speaker and I, I agreed uh, I thought it would be beneficial to make that connection uh, but a couple of weeks later I found out that there was an open homosexual on the agenda speaking agenda as well and I called him and I said I'm sorry had I known that this person was going to be a speaker too I would have not accepted your offer and I, I said, I know, and, and the conference was still like six months away, and uh, this was only two weeks after he, had, I had told him I would, and I said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to retract my offer to speak. And he wrote me a nasty email uh, about it and um, just, you know, got all over me about it. Well, <laughs> I wrote him a very firm reply uh, to it and said, you know, this is a matter of principle for me. Right, but, you did the right uh, thing. The principle was that I, I don't, I don't, ad, I don't go and support anyone who advocates something that Yahweh Himself has called an abomination. Right. Uh, so you know, these are the kinds of problems that we have to deal with with some in the alt right who are not Christians. Right, and 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 you know, if we don't, and and I try to tell people, even in the all right, and I even try to tell pagans this, and and make them understand it, that there's an important concept going on here. Christians understand that we do have a God, and that that God has law, and we recognize His laws and we keep them. And right. once we all understand that as individuals, that these laws are not permutable, that you cannot change them, because they came from higher authority than man, you cannot change them, you cannot make up your own rules, only then can we have a community of men willing to cooperate with one another and respect one another. If you know that I'm not going to despoil your daughter, or hit on your wife, or, or your son, for, for wow, then you can be comfortable with me because you know that I share your moral values. If we allow one sodomite into our community, we're done. We're done, exactly. Absolutely, it's poison the whole well. So you can't do that. There is a law and it must be followed. We don't follow the law perfectly because we're 
imperfect men, imperfect right. creatures. But uh, we we make an effort. We know the law, and we make an effort to follow it. And, and, and you the, cannot let somebody into your ranks who is a blatant, outright uh, lawbreaker. Right, and, and and that's the only grounds that we can have for, to be comfortable with our fellows and and to work together to build a viable community. There's no other yeah. grounds. It, as soon as man thinks that he could make law and regulate his fellow man, everything becomes relative. That's what Jews do. That's right. <laughs> That's the it relativism of Judaism. <laughs> yep, that's right. That's why we can never live with those people. They must be banished. And and and, and even with, with that understanding that that these moral laws these moral laws cannot be changed I can even get along with the pagan as long as he acknowledges that yes I can that. too if he, if he understands these things and I think a lot of them do I know a lot of pagans who uh, are more honorable than a lot of so called Christians I right know. that's true that's sad. it's sad but it's true because most Christians are only lip service Christians and, and that's yes. also a sad situation. That's, that, that's a lack of diligence. It it, it's a lack of diligence and too much reliance on church and government that you don't develop that's a character right. of your own. That's right. I, I know you don't want to discuss the, um, the the particulars of the few legal troubles with me, which members face over, over what happened in Charlottesville. I, I, we're not gonna. I know you'd rather not get into that, and and you're not yeah, free to speak I, I, about I can't, all of it. I, because of our attorney's advice, I I, I can't right. do that. But I can tell you that we are involved in some legal legal affairs. But it does seem um, to me. It, it does seem to me that information is slowly coming out, which is vindicating people on our side. It is. It is every day. It's coming out, and and I wanted it's to been give a massive um, cover up. Right, I wanted to give Brad Griffin some um, credit for that. He, he certainly seems to deserve it for being diligent about seeking um, evidence which vindicates our people in Charlottesville and and making sure it gets published. Uh, yes, I, I don't think that there's anyone uh, who has done a better job than Brad on his. I'll give him a plug. Occidental Descent. Right website that uh in uh exposing uh and not just uh you know with opinion but with uh with video with video evidence right uh, indisputable video evidence of what happened and yes uh, every day that passes uh the truth uh becomes plainer and easier to see but that doesn't stop the powers that be in Charlottesville from slapping the uh, the Negroes, for example, who assaulted our people, slapping them on the wrist and letting them go while they keep our people locked up in jail there without bond, uh, awaiting trial. It's, uh, it's a travesty. Uh, but the truth is coming out, and I think in the end the truth is going to, to overwhelm the left, the, the, the communists and anarchists up there, uh, and uh, show the world that uh, we were right all along. Well, well, right, absolutely. It just came out that this um, that this sodomite college professor named Dwayne Dixon had just been caught boasting openly on Facebook that he chased James Fields with a rifle just minutes before Fields had had um, been involved in that accident on on Fourth on Fifth Street. 
in Charlottesville. That is absolutely true. So, so James absolutely Fields true. was actually in fear of his life. Yeah, well, he was running for his life. Yes. And, and this faggot, supposedly college professor, this faggot is running around the streets with, with, with a semi-automatic rifle. <laughs> and right. chasing with white impunity. nationals. Right. With yeah. impunity. With impunity. And, yes. and, well, now he's been caught bragging on that, and, and I saw it four or five days ago, but I didn't get the chance to write anything on it uh, until late last night, and, and of course Alex Jones beat me to it, but, but I'm glad that Alex Jones did it. I'm happy that it's on InfoWars. Yes. Even now, the I'm, question is, will it mean anything? Will right. it mean anything in the legal sense? I don't know if it will or not, because those people are so corrupt. Right, I've been through that, and, and that's only the diligence of James Fields' lawyers that, that can determine that. Yes, that's right, exactly. But there was no violence at all. Wherever else the league went last year, there was no, no real violence whatsoever. There were some minor skirmishes uh, at NOLA, but... Yeah, that, that's right. And, and we had a, You saw we had a few minor skirmishes in New Orleans because the cops allowed the other side to come across the barriers right. and there were some there were some minor scuffles but uh we were in Pikeville Kentucky a week before New Orleans no problems uh we went to Charlottesville and uh, of course the police simply withdrew their presence from the street and allowed a riot, encouraged a riot to happen but uh 2 months after that we went to Shelbyville Tennessee and nothing happened it was a very peaceful event uh and we really expect uh uh, Tallahassee uh, today to be a uh, very peaceful event. Uh, you know, we go to these things to get our message out. We go to be seen in public, confronting our enemies face to face with with the truth. And the violence, even though the enemy and their their media friends like to throw it off on us, uh, you watch the videos of any place, New Orleans, Charlottesville, wherever, and you'll see. That we were were very restrained, very responsible, and only defended ourselves. Absolutely. So that's the that's the truth of the matter. And video evidence and uh, interviews and witnesses uh, confirm that. So we'll we'll see what happens. But yes, we are involved in some legal issues, and uh, some of our uh, uh, some some people on the right are are still incarcerated. Uh, Unfortunately, in Charlottesville, and uh, you know that may go on for a while, but uh, we, we, we're not going to forget the people that are behind the wire, as we say. They're they're POWs, as far as we're concerned. Well, I also know you've had serious problems problems raising legal funding, and and I even advertised for your Patreon page online. And as soon as I did that, uh, I mean, it wasn't really because I did it, but as soon as I did it, Patreon was down, and they won't accept any pledges, and they've been down for over two months now. It, it's crazy. I know, I know. Well, we have uh, we have had some uh, people who responded to our pleas uh, to help our legal defense fund by simply writing us a check and sending it to us in the mail the old-fashioned way and you can do that and we've had uh, we've had uh, a really good response and I, I'm very proud of our people because we don't have a lot of uh, we have a few well-heeled individuals no corporations or no foundations or anything like the left has but uh, 
we mainly have good, solid, middle, and working-class people who give us what they can, and I really appreciate their support. Well, right, and I'm in the same position. I mean, all of us are in that position. That, that's the way it is yes. when you're fighting this fight. I mean, that's the way it is. The, the financing is right. very, very thin. That That's <laughs> something to be expected. That there's um, no money in truth. There's only money in lies and deception. Last uh, weekend, yes, that's the way it is right now. But uh, I, I always remind people that every single thing in creation, every single object in creation, belongs to Yahweh Himself, and He will dispense it the way He wishes it to be dispensed. And He's doing this for a reason. Maybe He wants to see how tough His people are, how resilient, how determined. Absolutely. By the time I um, by the time I can air this interview at my website at Christagenia, we'll already have had our upcoming day at Tallahassee, and that's another university town. But let me tell you that even if I knew it was going to be another Charlottesville, I would still be there with you. And oh, I would be too. I think in Florida we can we, we can expect some law enforcement cooperation better than Virginia. But do you think they'll be as heavily as heavy-handed as they were at Shelbyville? At Shelbyville, I almost thought as if I was back in prison on a on a riot lockdown. The, the way they had the cops well, out. That's because, that, that's because you were <laughs> right. Exactly. That's because you were. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, we have been to the old state capitol in Tallahassee before, uh, about four years ago, and. There was uh, virtually no police presence. There were a few cops around, and there was very little opposition. I don't know if it'll be any different this time or not. It could be. I'm just thinking about the wake of the uh, recent Spencer appearance there and what happened with that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know. We always go in uh, with full security. Uh, we always obey the local laws, but we always go in with the uh, uh, level of security that we're able to uh, carry out for a particular operation, and this will be no different. We're always uh, very very aware uh, of, of the presence of danger. But, um, you know, if it turns out to be uh, like Shelbyville, uh, it'll just be another... Uh, It'll just be another uh, example of how the state operates to uh, restrict you of your rights, and we will have uh, been able to demonstrate that yet again. Uh, if they don't do that and simply give us the protection that they gave us four years ago, that would be the great, uh, the greatest uh, sort of outcome we could, the best outcome that we could hope for. Uh, or if it degenerates into something like Charlottesville, which I doubt it will, uh, then, uh, you know, uh, it is what it is, as they say. So we'll be there, uh, or I guess <laughs> what I should say is we will have been there and done that right. by the time people are hearing this, and they probably will know which of those scenarios panned out. Last weekend, and, and this is interesting to me, last weekend it was a... a, a leftist so-called women's march in Knoxville which drew several thousand participants and a mere few dozen members of the League of the South and the Traditionalist Worker Party joined perhaps a thousand anti-abortion counter-protesters and there was a small contingent of 
Antifa sodomites that showed up, but there were no real problems. I, I thought this was actually rather courageous of them, since I'm certain that if any trouble started, they would not have had the support of all of those normie abortion protesters. They would have been on their own. That, but this seemed to me like a good strategy to make these normie protesters realize that the hard right organizations are on their side. And, and can we look for more opportunities to exercise that strategy? Or, yes, or would we can. We're going to. But here's what happened. Uh, uh, we had uh, approximately two dozen members of the League and the traditional Workers' Party on the ground there, in the street, facing off against, as you've said, several thousand uh, demonstrators uh, out there pushing for abortion and feminism and all that, you know, nefarious stuff. But uh, there were about a thousand or so uh, normies who were uh, pro-life there. But you know what? Our people gave me a report. Uh, right after the event happened on this past Sunday, all those uh, normie pro-life people went inside somewhere and got out of the public sight for whatever it is they were going to do, and they would not stand with our people, about two dozen. Wow. And that left our two dozen people out there all alone against uh, several thousand of the opposition, including Antifa. But we had, uh, according to our people, the great support of the rank-and-file Knoxville and other uh, law enforcement officers who were there. They were apparently very sympathetic to our people right. uh, and their position in this particular matter. So yeah, you know, the normies even- kind of ran... Even at Shelbysville, I, I got the idea, and, and my wife got the impression, that the cops were really on our side, that they were really sympathetic yes, absolutely. to us. Yeah, absolutely. They were just doing uh, like cops normally do. They were just taking orders from right. their superiors. But if you talk to the rank and file, and some of them will talk, uh, they're they're uh, a little reticent sometimes to do that, but sometimes they will. They are on our side. They realize that we are the forces of light and civilization, and the Antifa and Black Lives Matter and the communists and anarchists is the forces of darkness and destruction. They know that. And uh, we're going back to Knoxville in, uh, sometime uh, sometime this year, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll have, God willing, uh, a lot more people than... Uh, we had well, at this particular small event that we we staged. So, but when, but yeah, the thing the thing to take away from that is the the normies in the uh, pro life they they simply abandon the street. They abandon it, and we had to pick it up. That's incredible. I didn't I, I didn't really see that. I looked into it just last night in, in preparation for this talk, and and I didn't. I saw a a line of the the hard right guys, the two dozen guys from from the Tennessee League and, and Heimbach's crew, that they looked like they were alone. I, I really didn't understand why. I didn't know the normies just abandoned. <laughs> That's pretty incredible. They did. They, yeah, they did. They abandoned the street yeah, well, and went inside 
to some venue, and I don't know which what venue it was, but that that was a direct report from our people up there. So yeah. That's I don't amazing. know why, I don't know where they went, I don't know under what circumstances they decided to do that, but they did it. Well, that's good, and I, and I think that that's a bigger plus for um for, for the league the league members from Tennessee who who led that contingent that small contingent. Yeah. While the the, the Antifa really isn't that large of an organization, and and they can. Even though they're a small organization, they can easily induce all of the self-righteous young Marxists at any university to show up at a counter-demonstration against racism. So they look a lot bigger than they are, and and then they exploit the crowds, and they use them as a shield and, and a cover for the violence they want to commit. That seemed to be their strategy in Charlottesville. So I, it was. I must we ask. We saw it face to face. Right. Sh- should university towns be, be avoided, or especially those in ultra-liberal centers where Marxists virtually control the entire justice system? And, and I know that might even be yes. difficult to know ahead of time. Well, we we have uh, we have our security folks working on finding out about on-the-ground situations before we go into a place. For example, we won't be going back to Charlottesville. We won't be going uh, to Gainesville, Florida, where the University of Florida is. Uh, we won't be going to any of these really leftist university towns in the South because uh, they are, as one of our uh, attorneys and information gatherers told us before we made the decision, not to go into Murfreesboro after we were at Shelbyville. Right. They are lawsuit traps. They are lawsuit traps waiting to be sprung on us. And I will not march our people into a situation that I know uh, is going to put our people in unnecessary danger and in harm's way like that. I simply won't do it. We're going to fight on ground where we have a good chance of winning, uh, or we're going to simply uh, wait until those situations present themselves, and we're not going to foolishly march into a lawsuit trap uh, like uh, Murfreesboro or Gainesville or somewhere like that. Now, we went into Charlottesville full well knowing what the risks were, and I would do that again if I had to make that same choice because we had to accomplish something in Charlottesville, and we did, but there's no reason to try to make Charlottesville happen again because that's a one-off thing. Uh, but uh, we have a reason for going into Tallahassee. You know, Tallahassee is a university town, yes, but it's also the capital of the state of Florida. That's another thing. So that's a kind of a special situation. Well, even yet, you know, I, I, I'm a, um, I, I haven't lived down south until the last part of my life, and, and you're aware of that, but I spent quite a bit of time in, in southwest Virginia during my life. I fell in love with Stanton when, when I was um, 16 years old, and and we lived in Bristol for several years and, and spent a great amount of time. My, my favorite place in southwest Virginia is the um, Robert E. Lee Hotel in Lexington, and, and I just love those towns. I had never been to Charlottesville, but Staten and Lexington both have um, 
deep southern traditional values and, and there's tons of monuments lining the little plaques in the streets of, of Stanton and, and monuments in Lexington and, and that's where um, that there are several there's a big um, confederate cemetery and, and and several famous confederate generals buried buried in those places and, and they're very deeply respected the Stonewall Jackson's right. grave in in um in Lexington. Melissa and I spent two hours there, back right the day after Charlottesville. Right, that that's where we headed. Uh-huh. We headed to Lexington, and and I was right. shocked. I, I mean, knowing Stanton and and Lexington for a long time, and and the Bristol area further south, I was really shocked at how bad it was, how liberal it was. I, I never knew uh, about Charlottesville. I was shocked to see how liberal and, and, and how bad the establishment was there. I really was. So close. Well, I, I was, too. I, I knew that they were that was a leftist hotbed, but you, I guess you have to go there to find out how bad right. it is. I'm like you. I've spent a lot of time in the Valley, you know, uh, Harrisonburg, uh, Lexington. Right. I've uh, been to the, Stanton, Harrisonburg. Too. all the way down to Bristol, and that, that's a different world. It's a different world completely. It seems to be, and it's only right over the mountain. What the <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Just over the mountain. It it really did surprise me how far removed it was from from the rest of southwest Virginia. It it I thought I was in Baltimore or something. It it was nuts. Yeah, exactly. Too close to D C. Well, well, I, I I have um another hour's worth of conversation, but I would hate to keep you all day and I, I certainly do appreciate your being here and and yet you um yeah, you have all my due respect, and it's been a pleasure knowing you this past year. I look forward to the future. Well, sir, I have a great deal of respect for you and what you do, and I do. Uh, I am much obliged for you having me on your show again. It's always a delight talking with you. We always have a good time and uh, talk about some really important uh, matters. Uh, so thank you for having me on. Thank you. Praise Christ. Praise Yahweh. Praise Christ. Good night. Before I leave this evening, I want to discuss a subject that always raises disputes, even among Christians. That is the idea that Jesus Christ is a Jew. Some of my fellow League members are identity Christians, and they understand what I am about to say, but many are not, and I would appeal to them to study this further. So here I will explain from a biblical and historical perspective and as briefly as I can exactly why Jesus is not a Jew. If there are any questions after this, please do not think that I cannot answer them. I certainly can and I would be happy to. But to understand this, we must start somewhere. What if Jesus were descended from the Israelite tribe of Judah, as the scripture says that he is? Well, of course he is, because the scriptures do not lie. But what if the people known as Jews today were not Jews of the tribe of Judah, or even of Benjamin or Levi? Then how could Jesus possibly be a Jew? The answer is easy. Jesus is not a Jew, because the people known as Jews today are not of Judah. 
The Bible itself tells us this. For this reason, Jesus himself told the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, I know thy works, and thy tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Just in case that is not understood, Jesus also said to the church at Philadelphia, in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. So according to Jesus Christ himself, the people calling themselves Jews at this time are not quote-unquote real Jews, meaning that they are not actually of the tribe of Judah. But how can that be? First we will see that Paul of Tarsus agrees with Jesus, and the events which Luke recorded in Acts chapter 26 had actually happened about 35 years before John recorded the Revelation. In Acts chapter 26, sometime around 58 AD, as Paul of Tarsus addressed King Herod Agrippa II, he spoke about the promise of the gospel, and he said, And now I stand, and am judged, for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews, or in our modern language, accused by the Jews. So according to Paul, the promises in Christ are for our twelve tribes, meaning the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. But the Jews, whom Paul mentions as an entity distinct and apart from the twelve tribes, were opposed to that promise. And therefore, on account of it, they were making accusations against Paul. You won't find too many modern so-called pastors preaching on this passage from Acts. To Paul of Tarsus, the twelve tribes are not Jews, and the Jews are not the twelve tribes. That is why Paul had a gospel message to the nations, the nations of Europe, because that is where the twelve tribes were, those distant nations to whom he was sent. But that is another story entirely. One place in the Bible where the confusion is cleared up a bit is in Romans chapter 9. Here are some excerpts with brief explanations, and we shall use the King James Version, and this is, of course, the same Paul of Tarsus. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, 
to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? Whose are the fathers? And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came? Who is over all? God blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is concerned for his kinsmen according to the flesh, those who are really Israelites, and here he is praying for them. He is grieved that many of them have not yet accepted Christ, because for them are the promises, covenants, and other things which should be associated with Christianity. Then he continues, Not as though the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Here it is evident that not everyone in Israel claiming to be an Israelite or at that time at least claiming to be a Judean or Jew, as we write, not everyone are legitimate descendants from or heirs of Isaac. The heirs of Isaac are only true Israelites, but they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Just like today we could say that they are not all Southerners who are of the South, or they are not all Americans who are in America. Paul continues and says in Romans chapter 9 verse 8, That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. The promise was the promise made to Isaac which was despised by his son Esau, and therefore it was inherited by his other son, Jacob. The people in Judea claimed to be Judeans, and they were not. They held the label of Israel, the national label, but they were not the children of the promise, as Paul, in the verse which follows, tells us which promise he means. In verse 9, For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. And Rebekah was the mother of Jacob and Esau. As he explains here, she also had a promise. So Paul continues, and shows how the scripture distinguishes between Jacob and Esau. For the children not yet being born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, the election, the choosing of Jacob, not of works, but of him that calls. Jacob didn't do anything to earn the distinction. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So the election might stand. As God had chosen and promised the inheritance to Jacob even before the two sons were born. Later in their lives, it was confirmed on several occasions in scripture that Jacob was the recipient of the promises and Esau was excluded. 
Paul is comparing Jacob and Esau here because they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And he is explaining that is because many of them are from Esau. They are Edomites and not Israelites at all. For that same reason Christ had told them in John chapter 10, But you believe me not? Because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. Christ never told his enemies that they were not his sheep because they did not believe him. Rather, he told them quite the opposite, that they did not believe him because they were not his sheep. They were not his people in the first place. If the Jews are from Esau, and if Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, then how could Jesus be a Jew? In John chapter 8, we see the following exchange between Jesus and these Jews, starting with verse 32, where Jesus is speaking. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Let us comment that the Israelites had always considered themselves as having been in bondage in Egypt. The true Judeans had considered themselves as having been in bondage in Babylon. While Edomites were subject to Israel in the days of David and Solomon, these Pharisees obviously did not concede these things. So we continue in John chapter 8. Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abides forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. The children of Israel are freed from the bondage of sin in Christ, as Paul explained frequently, and as John also explained at length in his first epistle. Otherwise there is no propitiation for sin after Christ. Again, continuing with John chapter 8, verse 37, Christ tells his adversaries, I know that ye are Abraham's seed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed. But you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. How could all Israel be saved if the word doesn't have a place in every Israelite? If the law is not written into the hearts of every Israelite, as God promised in Jeremiah. These Jews who were opposed to Christ, these Judeans properly, they did not believe him, as he explained, because they were not his sheep. The only Judeans who could be Abraham's seed, and yet not be true Israelites, are the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, as well as those of Judah's Canaanite son Shelah and the Ishmaelites. History and scripture demonstrate that the Edomites were in Judea at this time and in large numbers and that they had taken on the laws and customs of the Judeans or Jews. There is also evidence in scripture for the presence of some people who were descended from other groups as well. But these are the main groups. Israelite Judeans and Edomite Judeans because Judea at this time 
was only the name of a Roman province. It was a geographical distinction and not a tribal distinction. Just like England today, it used to be descriptive of the Angles, Angle land. Can we say that now? The famous geographer Strabo, Strabo of Cappadocia, who lived and wrote to about 25 AD, that's when he died, attested that the Edomians or Edomites were mixed up with the Judeans and he said that they joined the Judeans and shared in the same customs with them. That's Strabo's Geography, Book 16, Chapter 2. The late 1st century Judean historian Flavius Josephus supplies all of the historic details of Strabo's statement. In Ezekiel chapter 35 and verse 10, this is nearly 600 years before Christ, we see a prophecy that Esau would take for himself the lands of Israel and Judah after the people were deported by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The classical records tell us that this did indeed happen. Then, where he discussed the period of the Hasmonean dynasty, the people called the Maccabees, because the word Maccabee means hammer, who ruled Judea from about 156 B.C. to the time of Herod around 36 B.C. Josephus describes how certain of them forcibly converted to Judaism all of the Edomites of what later became known as Judea. In his Antiquities, Book 13, from line 257, Josephus described how the high priest, John Hyrcanus, sometime around 125 B.C., forced the conversion and circumcision of the Edomites of Dora and Morisa and their environs, where Josephus said that they were hereafter considered to be Judeans, or Jews if you want, if you want to use the King James translation of the word Judean. Then later, in that same book of Josephus's Antiquities, from line 393, we see the much greater extent of the conversion of the surrounding Edomite and other non-Israelite peoples to Judaism, which took place while Alexander Janius was high priest and king from 103 to 76 BC. Here Josephus described the conversion of at least 30 different cities and towns at this time, many of which places were inhabited by Edomites and other Canaanites. Students of the Old Testament should understand that the Canaanites were a people accursed by God and that Esau really lost his birthright because he had taken Canaanite wives. From this point, the Edomites eventually came to dominate all of Jerusalem and Judea, including the temple, which they had full control of by the time of Christ. Herod was an Edomite, and Herod 
and his family, even under the Romans, were appointing their own cronies into the high priesthood, the office of high priest. For that reason, the high priests in the New Testament are often distinguished from the Levites. That is why Christ, in John chapter 8, conceded that they were of Abraham's seed, because they were indeed descendants of Esau. By their flesh they were descendants of Abraham, as Paul said, that the children of the flesh aren't the children of God. Not any descendant of Abraham is a child of God, but only the children of the promise. That these people were not Israelites is attested to both in that same chapter where Christ told them that they were children of the devil, that first murderer, Cain, and in John chapter 26, I'm sorry, John chapter 10, verse 26, where Christ told them, but you believe not, you believe me not because you are not my sheep. They were not his sheep because they were not Israelites, but Edomites. The links in scripture from Esau to Cain lie in the genes of his Canaanite wives and the intermingling of the Canaanites and the Kenites which is evident throughout the history of the Old Testament and suggested in Genesis chapter 15. Returning to John chapter 8 in the verse which follows Christ denies that these Judeans have a common origin with himself from verse 38 I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. They answered him, and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. They knew what he was talking about when they said, We be not born of fornication. They didn't think that he was calling them spiritual bastards or religious bastards. He was calling them bastard bastards, race-mixed bastards. Esau had married the daughters of the Canaanites the Hittites, and race mixing is called fornication in the New Testament. Jude verse 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I think it's verse 8. It might be a little later. The Ishmaelites and children of Shelah were also mixed in this same manner. In the decades before Christ, many of the tribe of Judah were also mixing with these people. While these Judeans denied it, they were indeed products of fornication. Here in this exchange between Jesus and the Jews, we have a fulfillment of the prophecy found in Malachi chapter 2, especially at verse 11, but I'll read from verse 7. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. But you are departed out of the way. You have caused to stumble many at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. Malachi was writing, probably towards the beginning of the 4th century B.C., or maybe towards the end of the 5th. It's a difficult book to 
actually find the time that it was actually written in. But it was written in that time, and we know that from the historical records. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith Yahweh of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as you have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Have we not all one father? This is a dialogue. They are now responding to God. The people of the priests, especially, of Jerusalem, are seen as responding to God and saying, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, every man against his brother, by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Then in verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously. This is the answer to their questions. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of of Yahweh whom he loved and has married the daughter of a strange God. Yahweh will cut off the man that does this. The Jews are all cut off today. They're cut off from God. They don't accept Christ. The master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offers an offering unto Yahweh of hosts. Christ will never accept them. They're all race mixed. They are all bastards. Paul of Tarsus says in Hebrews chapter 12 that one is either a son or a bastard, and the bastards have nothing coming. Malachi was a prophet of the second temple period and his book of prophecy foretold of John the Baptist as well as of Christ himself. Malachi in chapter 1 is also the prophet of Christian Zionism but that's another story for another day. Malachi chapter 2 is therefore entirely relevant to the ministry of Christ. These Judeans may have been descended from Abraham But because they were not true Israelites, Christ told them, My word has no place in you. Then he continues to explain to them that they are indeed bastards. From John chapter 42, John chapter 8 verse 42. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. This is how Christ responded to them, after he told them that they weren't true children of Abraham, and after they insisted that they were not born of fornication. He's telling them here that they certainly are. You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, which only describes Cain. And none of the true Israelites of Scripture descended from Cain. They descended from Seth. No Israelite, unless he's a bastard and not really an Israelite, could be descended from Cain. But Cain was the only one that could be a murderer from the beginning. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. 
When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. This is why Paul compared Jacob and Esau in reference to Judea in Romans chapter 9. And in Hebrews chapter 12, Paul described Esau as a fornicator or profane person because he was a race mixer and had no legitimate offspring. Judah was a race mixer, but with the mercy of God, through Tamar, Judah had legitimate offspring, which could inherit his estate. Esau had no legitimate offspring. When he tried to correct it, he ended up marrying a daughter of Ishmael, and neither was she acceptable to God. While some of the Pharisees, which were basically a political and religious sect, were indeed Israelites, many were not. But the high priests and most of the gang that ran the temple during the entire period from the death of the first Herod to the destruction of Jerusalem were not Pharisees, but Sadducees, a group which Jesus never even directly addressed unless they accosted him. The Sadducees were the most consistent adversaries of Paul and the other apostles as well. So while it cannot be imagined that all of the enemies of Christ were of the same mind or origin, speaking to the leaders of the temple, whom John called the Jews in chapter 10 of his gospel, Jesus Christ said to them, But you believe me not, because you are not my sheep. As I said unto you. Where it says, As I said unto you, he must have been referring to the previous argument he had with them in John chapter 8. As we have just explained, Jesus did not tell the Jews that they were not a sheep because they did not believe him. That is what the denominational churches teach and they have it wrong all those churches are in the pocket of the Jews Jesus told the Jews that they did not believe him because they were not his sheep in other words the Jews who opposed him were not the people of Israel for whom Jesus came Paul later tells us in Romans as we have also already described that not all of the people of Israel were actually of Israel. So we see why these people were not his sheep. And we see why Christ later told us in the Revelation that there were them which say they are Jews but are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. As Paul consistently taught in his epistles, the Judeans who accepted Christ, my sheep hear my voice, became one with Greeks who accepted Christ and they lost their identity as Judeans. Judeans who were his sheep heard his voice and eventually lost their identity as Judeans becoming Christians. Today's Jews are descended from all of those Jews who rejected Christ who were not his sheep in the first place. So how could Jesus be a Jew? insisting that Jesus is a Jew, like these modern Jews, is like believing that the founding fathers of our own nation were Negroes. Because most of the 
current residents of Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia, and Boston, and the rest of our major cities today might be Negroes. There may be some white people in Washington or Baltimore or Atlanta right now, but neither does that make them Negroes. Like, likewise, Jesus was not a Jew. He was a man of the tribe of Judah, and today's Jews are clearly not of Judah. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, true Israel, and the eternal enemy of the Jews.